Let me invite you to open up your Bibles to Exodus chapter 2, and that's where we'll begin this evening, Exodus chapter 2. It's good to see each one here, and appreciate um, especially the visitors that are here this evening. It's a great encouragement, uh, I know, to the group here, to me. Uh, We began our meeting yesterday talking about marriage, and uh, we're looking at some lessons about the family this week. Marriage, of course, is where a family begins. That's the the beginning unit of the family. And then as we uh, look tonight and through uh, the next couple of lessons, we're moving towards uh, the children that enter into and increase the size of that family and increase the responsibility of that family. I want to look tonight at the example that we find in Exodus chapter 2 with the parents of Moses and look at what lessons we can learn from them. It's interesting as you look there in Exodus chapter 2 that um, Amram and Jochebed, that's Moses' parents, they are not mentioned there in the narrative. We have to move forward a little bit and we see that they are mentioned, for instance, over in chapter 6 and then as the uh, genealogies are being given there in Numbers chapter 26, Amram is said to have married Jochebed and we see... um, Aaron and Miriam, who were born to them. Uh, Interestingly, Miriam and Aaron's birth isn't given to us. We're not told about their birth. Of course, they're not the focus. Moses is the focus. Like He's the important character we're looking at. And he's so much more important uh, or so prominent in the story that as we're told of his birth, his, his parents' names aren't even mentioned, but their actions are. They're not just mentioned here, the actions, but over in Hebrews chapter 11, of course, as as we're looking back to the faith of Moses, the parents get drawn into that conversation of the faith of Moses. His parents also had faith in that they hid him when he was a child. And we'll look at that account more fully a little bit later in the lesson. I'd like to begin by just looking at these first 10 verses here in Exodus chapter 2 and then make a few observations Uh, about what we can learn from from what his parents did here. It says, A man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi. The woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. When she could hide him no longer, she got him a a wicker basket and covered it with tar and pitch. And then she put the child into it and set it among the reeds by the bank of the Nile. His sister stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bathe at the Nile, with her maidens walking alongside the Nile. And she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. And when she opened it, she saw the child. And behold, the boy was crying. And she had pity on him and said, This is one of the Hebrews' children. And the sister said to Pharaoh's daughter, Shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women, that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Take this child away and nurse him for me, and I will give you your wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew, and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. And she named him Moses, and said, Because I drew him out of the water. It's a pretty brief story. Um, I, I, I might liken it, and it certainly is likened, to the story of Jesus. We don't have a lot about Jesus' early life. And, and sometimes, obviously, we make more of the birth story than the Bible 
incidentally, makes of the birth story. And so, likewise with Moses, we have very little, and then he's all of a sudden 40 years old, and, and where did those 40 years go? doesn't matter. That's not the important part of the story. Same thing with our Lord. And of course, there'd be more connections to that. We have we have a, a son of the house of Levi marrying a daughter of the house of Levi, and, and of course, the, the death penalty here with the children, the the murder of the innocents, that correlates to Jesus' birth, going down to Egypt, being in Egypt. So there's lots of connections to be drawn there. But I think that just because it's, it's not given much attention doesn't mean that what is given isn't something we can learn from. And I think that just as we can learn things from Jesus' birth, we can likewise learn things from Moses' birth. And so I'd just like to notice three elements of, of um, the... The, the character that it took for Moses' parents in these circumstances. The first thing I would notice is that it took a lot of faith to have children, just to have children in this particular moment. Um, if you read much, and, and, and from a worldly perspective, people are more and more making the case against having children. Um, you know, if you're reading, you know, Secular publications, New York Times, uh, The Atlantic, or just all the time people are writing academic articles about the selfishness of continuing to have children uh, in a time and in a culture such as this. And there's just myriad reasons why you should not want to bring a child into this world, not the least of which is the misery of the world, but also, you know, there's population concerns. There's all, all sorts of reasons why they would give. You don't want to do this, and the responsible thing to do is to not have children. And I would say, in addition to that, there's just the convenience factor. People, we're, we're more self-convenience-based society uh, than maybe, certainly in this country, than we've ever been. And children are massive inconvenience. I mean, if you, if you just were to describe the process of having children, set apart the that, that they are children. Just think about the process. You just describe it to them. What am I going to go through? Well, we're going to start the process out with pain. And it's, it's going to be the sort of pain that, for instance, in the scriptures, comes to represent pain in general. Like when God wants to say, you're going to suffer, he says, you're going to suffer like a woman giving birth to a child. That's, that's pretty significant. So what, what happens then? Right, so you go to that kind of pain, and then what happens? All right, well, you're going to... Um, when, if you were to ask people, people ask me now, having teenagers, and so we've kind of gone through the process of raising up children from babies, at least to that point, they say, what's it going to be like? It, it is impossible to fully convey that, just like, you know, you remember if, if, if you, before you had children, you sort of asked those questions, and people are trying to give you a sense. All I can say is your life is not your own anymore. You do not get to decide when you go to sleep. You do not get to decide when you wake up. You, before you have children, no matter what's going on in your life, you can almost, almost always shut it down at some point and say, I'm going to sleep and I will deal with this tomorrow. Not so with children. They decide when it's time to go to bed all of a sudden, at least for a period of time. You don't get to decide when you're going to be somewhere. I can remember... The, the change in, we always were pretty good about being in places on time. And then the first gospel meeting that we were in after uh, our first child was born, we're on our way there. We're making it on time. Things are great. Nope. Nope. We're on the side of the road cleaning up spit up. And the, 
the caravan of paraphernalia that you have to take with you all of a sudden for this tiny little creature and all this. It's, it's a very inconvenient thing to have children. So, some people don't even have enough faith to overcome that. I just don't want my life to be messed up. We can't travel like we used to. We can't, we can't have the nice stuff we used to. You know, everything's always torn up. And so you get past that at least. Then you look around at the world. We do live in a world full of misery. And we live in a world that we feel like it's not getting better. You know, I mean, there are some people that are very optimistic. I'm not. I look, and I think, I think that our country is going the way of every country. And, and I think that we will get farther and farther away from God because I think that's always been the pattern of humanity. The, the world thinks that, that over time man continues to get better. God says it's just not true. Over time, man gets further and further away from God. And maybe we lurch back towards him on occasion, but then the pattern begins all over again. So, I'm not hopeful <coughs> from that standpoint. We might say that in addition to just the spiritual conditions, maybe we're concerned about economic conditions, all sorts of things like that. What did... Amram and Jochebed bring Moses into. They decided to conceive and have a child, not just them, but really many Israelites. In fact, some of the reason for the harsh conditions were because so many Israelites were having children. And so what did they bring them into? They brought them into slavery. Can you imagine living in in a society where you know that when you give birth to this, this child, this child will automatically be a slave by dint of being born. We're going to have a child anyway. Can you imagine being the religious minority? We cannot. I mean, I know we, we may feel like it in some ways, and we are in some ways, but generally speaking, the way we worship God has generally been accepted in this country for a very long time. But here are people who are in the religious minority. Idolatry is consuming the world around them in Egypt. Egypt is, I mean, it, they were Athenians before Athenians, right? If they could, if they saw something in nature, they were going to make a god to line up with that something. And not only that, but as, as Joshua would seem to indicate uh, towards the end of his book when he's making his farewell address and he's saying, you know, choose you this day. He will talk about uh, this time before God brought you out of Egypt. You put away those gods. He's still telling them at that point to put away those gods, which indicates that it's not just Egypt around them and then the Jews were all faithful. That had seeped into Israel as well. And so it's not just out there idolatry, but it's also right here idolatry. And so anyone faithful would truly be in the religious minority. But what's more than all of that, of course, is the, the death penalty. We go back to chapter 1, and we see there in chapter 1 that um, because the children of Israel had been growing so rapidly that Pharaoh put out a decree that they should uh, destroy all the male children. And it, it tells us about these Egyptian handmaids, midwives, uh, who, uh, who came, or Hebrew midwives. And verse 15, the king of Egypt spoke to the Hebrew midwives. One of them was named Shiprah, and the other was named Puah. And he said, 
When you are helping the Hebrew women to give birth and see them upon the birth stool, if it is a son, then you shall put him to death, but if it is a daughter, then she shall live. The Hebrew wives, midwives, it says, feared God. They deceived the king of Egypt, Pharaoh. God was favorable towards them because of that. Um, and then it says, um, verse 21, because the midwives fear God, he established households for them. Then, verse 22, Pharaoh commanded all his people, saying, every son who is born, you are to cast into the Nile, and every daughter you are to keep alive. And so Pharaoh, uh, not pleased with the efficiency of the midwives, just turns to the Israelites themselves and says, you kill your own children. And so slavery religious persecution, minority, and death penalty. We, we have never lived in anything like that. People are writing columns and teaching whole college courses on the dangers of having children on the basis of really mild inconveniences. Here are people who are living under true tyranny and oppression, but still say, I bring a child into that. I think there are a few places in the world where indeed people have, have lived through that and still had the faith to bring up children. I know people who are from China who have had to go through the process of hiding children, hiding the fact that they're having children, or, or who have been the result of parents who had enough faith and, and confidence to go through and defy the, that sort of government order. We don't know what that's like. And I want to suggest to you that if they could have faith to bring children into that, then we certainly ought to have enough faith to bring children into this world. We need to be reminded of Psalm 127, which tells us what God thinks of children, and I think lays out what we ought to think of having children. Psalm 127 and verses uh, uh, 3 beginning is, is a passage that we go to somewhat frequently. He says there, Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. They're a blessing. They're a pleasure. I know what I said at the beginning about the inconveniences. That's true. You know, one of the peculiar things about that is that when you go through that process, you, you, you go through the birth, or one of us goes through the birth pains, you go through the birth pains, and you go through all of that inconvenience and all of that stress and everything and the sleeplessness, and then, and then couples regularly go, you know, let's do that again. Why do they do that? Because there is joy. Because they see something good and hopeful and valuable there. And so we continue to, to go through that process again and again. Recently, uh, after we um, had decided to go through the adoption process, here we are uh, within eyesight of of having our lives to ourselves again, right? And and then we we've started over now. We have a one year old, and somebody just said, "Why would you do that?" We, we, we see all the same things there that we saw before, and we we delight to go through that process again. Now, I know that every little thing, like at, at any given moment, you cut out a section, you say, well, this, this right here is not a delight. No, but on the whole, it is. And it continues to be. I think sometimes you see, um, you see stories, or, or maybe you've gone through this, 
you're going through a, a grocery store one day, and um, if you have young children, mothers, I'm sure you're familiar with this kind of a story. You're going through the grocery store, and it's things are not going well. And you're at that point where you're just trying to decide, do I risk being taken in by DHR or, or just shut it all down, just go to the car and go home and not get groceries today. It's just one of those days. And, and some older lady will walk by and they see all that stress and they see the kid that's grabbing everything off the shelves and see you're at your wit's end and they'll say something like this. Don't forget to savor and enjoy these moments. They'll be gone before you know it. And that mother's like, yeah, I, I hope they're gone before I know it. But having at least gotten to some distance from those moments, I can tell you how many times Amy and I have talked about wishing our kids were back there again. That there's a joy that goes along with even those moments that you wish you could have back. And I just want to say to both ends of that spectrum, if you're the older lady, Keep reminding young parents. They need to be reminded of the joy that children are. And if you're on the other end, receive those reminders. They're true. They know what they're talking about. They've been through that, and they are looking back. And they know they know what they miss about that. We need to be reminding people of the glory of parenting, and particularly the glory of motherhood. So diminished is motherhood in our society. Our society exalts exalts a certain kind of glory. It goes with intelligence or with ingenuity in the marketplace. Have you invented something? Have you made money? These are the things that will get you respect and nothing else will. And in fact, if you say that I have chosen to be a homemaker, somebody might say something like, is, is, that, is that all you're going to do? All? I'm, what else is there time for? And it, and it is such a time and all-consuming thing that you absolutely can pour yourself into that. And I think that when Paul speaks of motherhood in 1 Timothy chapter 2 and in verse 15, and this is not, this is not to point out and say that there is that there's no value in anything else, that there's no value in other things that a a woman might pursue in her life. But to note what Paul says here in 1 Timothy 2.15, he says, but women will be preserved through the bearing of children if they continue in faith and love and sanctity with self-restraint. I think that that's a deep well right there, that, that one verse. And I don't know what all Paul might mean by that. I think this is one thing he means. That it is a glorious thing that a woman does when she bears children. And it is associated here with salvation. And at the very least, we ought to hold motherhood up and say, this is as incredible and as wonderful as the degrees and education and and, um, successful business that any man or woman has ever achieved. Political power, whatever. Here, Paul says, this is glory. This is glory. And it should not be looked at as somehow a woman has failed because this is all she has achieved. She's achieved this, Paul says. She has reached a pinnacle. And so we ought to talk about 
motherhood in that way and be very careful with our language that we do not allow our language to be influenced by the world. We don't begin to talk about raising children as sort of a, um, um, a failure to achieve anything great. I think we need to be reminded of, of the potential what's possible when we have children. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6, again, I know I'm looking at familiar passages, but I want to bring them to light in, in the thought process of having the faith to have children. Proverbs chapter 22 and verse 6 is bring, uh, train up a child in the way he should go, and even when he is old, he will not depart from it. Some people talk about it, whether or not that is a uh, definitive statement or a proverbial statement. I believe it is a proverbial statement. I believe it is possible. I believe it's possible for a godly uh, family, a godly couple to bring up children in the way he should go and he does depart from it. If, if that's not true then there is no free will. Then we're programmed uh, in, in the home and, and we can never leave that programming. I don't, I don't believe that, that that is true. But I do believe that he's sta- stating a proverbial truth and when when Solomon and the other writers of Proverbs state a proverbial truth, what they're saying is, this is a rule. And it is appropriate to say that this is true. So that, if that's not what happens, if indeed a godly uh, couple raise a child and, and he does depart from the Lord, that is an exception. That's not the rule. And I think that in order to, to sort of console ourselves and console people we love, we act like the exception is more common than I think it really is. People say, we did everything we could. I'll tell you, it can't be as true as often as people say it. Because if it's, off, if it's as true as, as often as people say it, then Proverbs 22 is not, it's not even a proverbially true statement. And so this has got to be the general rule. It's the general truth. And so I want to think in terms of, I can raise faithful children. That is possible. I hear people talk about, you know, I just pray God will give me faithful children. He will not drop them in your lap. He's told you how to get them, how to raise them. But He doesn't just give them to you. I even heard one man so pessimistic about the prospects He said he prayed that the Lord would come before his children reached an age where they were responsible for themselves because he didn't think there's really any way that they would all remain faithful. And I said, that's on you. And we ought not to have that level of lack of confidence. And I believe not only is it possible, but when we follow God, it is the likely, it is the most likely outcome. And that needs to be our mindset. But I tell you, the only way it'll be our mindset is if the joy of having children is is culminated most truly and most surely in in John's words in third John verse four, that I have no greater joy. I know he's not talking about his physical children, but we, we often apply it there and I think appropriately. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are faithful. In, in Third John there, to quote it from the New American Standard, I have no greater joy than this than to hear of my children 
walking in the truth. And you got to start there. I think that for a lot of people, like their greatest joy, they might say that, right? They might talk like that. But from, from the looks of it, their greatest joy is when their son can hit a curveball. And they just feel it like... I know people are joking sometimes, but they'll say something along those lines like, well, I said something similar the other day. My, my daughter made a comment about uh, her history class. And it was a comment that lined up very much with what I think about her history class. And, and it was one of those proud parent moments. And you're like, I got that across. But then I like jump around and hoop and holler. I just said, right on. I think we show our children what our greatest joy is by how much excitement and how much enthusiasm we give them when they, when they succeed in those areas. I want my children to know that my greatest joy is their pursuit of God and that nothing makes me happier than to see them doing that. Nothing melts my heart like seeing them do that. But if you've got a different kind of joy, then, then that's where your joy will be. And your, your children will most likely satisfy what your greatest joy is. Because you'll tell them what that is, and they'll give that to you. I think a lot of times what happens is early on, maybe late in life we wish they would serve God, but early on we're, we're not as keen or not as focused on that. And then later on we say, well, I wish, I really wish they were this... Yeah, that comes by that being your, your greatest joy even from the moment they enter this world. So, that's, that's where the joy is found. Well, not only did they have faith to even conceive and produce a child, but they had the faith to protect their child. And that would be a great deal of faith. I talked about those in China, those in a place, even in, in a modern context, who've had to go through that process when we look at our society today, there are too many people who bring their children into the world without intent. And we know that. I mean, it doesn't take much intent. In fact, it takes no intent at all from the standpoint of the thought process of I'm going to bring a child into this world. Very often, people are thinking much about pleasure and then children are just the result. In fact, so much so that some people are willing to say that that's a... Um, that that's a negative thing. Like the children is a negative thing. And the pleasure is the only actual valuable part of that process. When it says in Exodus chapter 2, there's a phrase there uh, that I think is peculiar, at least it's peculiar to me, and you may have noticed this before. But in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 2, it says, The woman conceived and bore a son, and when she saw that he was beautiful. When she saw that it, he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. The Hebrew writer picks up on that uh, phrase and, and uses it again when talking about the faith uh, of Moses and his parents. In Hebrews chapter 11, and there in verse 23, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child. They were not afraid of the king's edict. What, what kind of picture do you get there? 
you get the idea that, that here uh, they, they realize the edict, and so they're going to bear this child, and they're going to put him outside and expose him or throw him in the river or whatever it is to, to dispose of this illegal child. And then he's born, and then they're, oh, well, no, we couldn't do that to this child. Now, if he'd have looked like Aaron or Miriam, it would have been tough luck. But this is a beautiful child. And so we'll keep him because he's such a looker. That's not what the word beautiful here really means. In, in fact, I think we, we begin to get a clue as to the idea behind this, this wording here. We look over at Acts chapter 7. In Acts chapter 7 and verse 20, Stephen brings up the story of Moses in his lengthy sermon here about the history of Israel and Israel's rejection of their various saviors, he says in, in verse 20, it was at this time that Moses was born and he was lovely in the sight of God. Now that word lovely is the same word in Hebrews chapter 11 for beautiful. And it's, the only, it's one of, those are the only two times that word's used in the New Testament. But notice what it says, he was lovely in the sight of God. So in the, in the case of Hebrews 11, it says because he was beautiful to his parents. Here, it's he's beautiful to God. Well, that gives me a little bit more perspective as to what we're talking about. But I think then we could go one further and sort of getting some insight into that word by looking back to Genesis chapter 1. In Genesis chapter 1, there is the story of the creation. And you'll recall that as you go through the story of creation, that God makes a pronouncement uh, repeatedly, as he goes through the creation, in verse 10, it says, God called the dry land earth, and the gathering of the waters he called seas, and God saw that it was good. That word good there is the same for beautiful in Exodus chapter 2 and verse 2. And I don't think that God is saying, that's really attractive. He, he's saying it's good in a deeper sense than that. That this is... It's, it's beautiful, um, not just from the standpoint of visually. It's beautiful in, in what it stands for, in what it represents, in its appropriateness. I think then the idea of Moses' parents is what they see when Moses is born is what God sees. They see that child the way God sees a child. They look at life the way God looks at life. They see a being created in God's image is what they see. I think the idea of being able to see life and see potential in life is a very strong argument. I don't think it's the strongest argument, and I certainly don't think it's the only argument, but I think it's a very strong argument against abortion. That when you look at a child, and, and this is one thing, you talk about public opinion, one of the things that's swaying public opinion on abortion is how much we can see the child inside the womb more than we used to could. It's interesting, on all these various discussions, people say, let's look at the science. This is one where the science is killing them. Because science is making it more and more possible for us to see life. People have a hard time when they can see it. It's one thing when I don't have to look at it and just say, that's a clump of cells. Oh, a clump of cells that looks like this? Okay, well, now I'm uncomfortable. So uncomfortable are they that a while back in Texas, they passed a law, tried to pass a law, that said when you go into an abortion clinic, 
you have to get an ultrasound, and each woman would have to look at that ultrasound before she continued on with the decision to have an abortion. And and the the pro-abortion crowd really fought and ended up um, fighting back that law, and I think it's because they know. They know if she sees that, it's going to be a lot harder. In fact, it's not just that they speculate that. They know it from studies of how many times a woman goes through that, and once she sees that and realizes there's, there is a baby here being killed, I can't do that. And the world is working overtime to make sure women forget that. And so we need to, we need to support that notion of the beauty of life and the beauty of the potential of life and most of all the beauty of recognizing that that is that that child is created in God's image she has she or he has that specialness about them but what about us i don't think anybody in this room is on the verge of trying to decide whether or not to protect your child from that kind of destruction maybe there is and I hope that you're persuaded by, by the notion of seeing the specialness of life. But I think the things that we have to protect our children from are, are less tangible. Nobody's coming to take your child away. Not right now. Nobody's coming to, um, to force an abortion on you or your spouse. But I tell you what, the world is coming for your children. And they're coming at them with everything they've got. Some of that's been exposed recently. Uh, in the online um, schooling that's been happening, um, as, as more and more children are, are still engaged in public school, but from home, they've had to send out letters to say, we don't want the parents in the room. And in some of the private correspondences that have actually come out and been exposed, they're like, how can we talk to the children about the things we need to teach them when their parents who have these old-fashioned ideas are right there and they're going to fight against that? Yeah! They're worried. They're worried that their indoctrination won't be as smooth as it used to be. I want to tell you a couple of things, just broadly speaking, that I think we need to protect our children from. The world is robbing children of their childhood. Over in Mark chapter 10. Mark chapter 10 and in verse 15. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. Jesus would frequently point to children. And in contradiction to the sort of annoyance that maybe his apostles might have towards children, Jesus, you know, there's something you can learn here. There's something beautiful about the innocence of children. And that is what the world would take away. There are things that children don't need to know when they're children. And the world says, we will tell them about those things. And then I want to tell you, there's things that we never need to know about. And the world is teaching our children those things. Um, you talk about sexual education classes, things of that nature. There, there's a, um, there has been a push, and it, it has been um, stronger at certain times than others. But I was reading an article several years ago 
when someone who at a national level was involved in the uh, National Board of Education, and he was talking about needing to, to teach certain aspects of, of sexual conduct that are grossly immoral. Let me just, that's an understatement, all right? Things that would sting the ears. And so I'm reading through what he says our children need to know, and he says, well, if we don't tell them, who will? And I was like, nobody, and that would be okay. Like, I could have done without ever having read that for my whole life. But not only do they think we need to teach our children, he thinks we need to teach our kindergartners about that. And people think that we're so prudish because we want to keep them from that. We want to keep their innocence. Yes, I want to keep my child the kind of child that Jesus would say, here, here's what represents the beauty of the kingdom. This childlike nature, this trust, I don't want them to be cynical at five years old. I want them to have hope and, and, and trust and faith that a child ought to have. And when we say today in our society, oh, children are growing up so fast, I'm you, that's what we mean. Because on the other side of this, the thing that they're robbing children of is children growing up. So on the one hand, they're making them grow up too fast, and in another sense, they're keeping them from ever growing up. And it's a peculiar thing, but, but when you look at the Scriptures, we've got a passage like uh, what we just read in Mark ten fifteen, but over in Ephesians chapter 4, in Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 14, it says, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. The foolishness of children, the foolishness that is bound up in the heart of a child that the rod will drive far from him, that foolishness is being encouraged to stay there. So that at the same time, we have children who are entirely too knowledgeable of sin and entirely gullible and entirely irresponsible and selfish. We have 40-year-old men who'd rather play video games than go to work and get a job. And it's, it's, it's sad and, and disgusting and pitiful. And all the while, the world's cheering them on in both directions. And I think that we've got to be very careful that we recognize that if we are not training our children, we are not educating our children, someone is. Um, yesterday we talked about Song of Solomon and some of the language there that, that is used that is, is intimate and talks about intimacy and it is uncomfortable. If you are not teaching your children about sexual relationships, I mean, oh, let me ask this, when your children get to be adults, who do you think they will have heard more about sex from? You or the world? And I think far too many Christian parents stay so far away from touchy subjects and they surrender that territory to the world and then we wonder, you know, how did this happen? What's what they've been watching on TV since they were five or even sooner? I know there's a little bit of uh, of this in that movie and, and in that television show. Don't you know that when they are watching those shows at, at, at 
adolescent ages, that what they're doing is, is they're forming a reality. This is what love is. That's what the, is forming in their brain. And, and because our brains are fully formed, we might watch that. And we're able to filter it out already. And so we think they are too, and they're not. They're soaking it up. Because guess what? That's the only thing they hear about that subject, because you're not going to talk about it. I better be talking about it. I better give them God's perspective on that. Clarity. Otherwise, they walk around with filthiness saturating their minds before they're old enough to even know how to make decisions about that. And never learning any sort of discernment that Paul talks about here in Ephesians chapter 4. We don't, we don't have grown people who know how to think. And so we need to be protecting our children. I mean, I, I'm not going to get into this a lot this week, but let me just say this. If your children have access to the internet and you don't know how much time they're spending there or what they're looking at, then you are to be blamed. There's a foolish parent that opens his child's, that opens up access to their child from what the world is doing and says, I will stand by and leave them unprotected. They will be victims. And then one day you'll be like that parent saying, oh, what happened? You let the world raise them. That's what happened. Well, finally, Amram and Jochebed had the faith to do the next right thing. To put their faith into action when the rubber meets the road. I can remember before we had children, when we were expecting our first child, we talked to a lot of older people. We talked especially to people who had faithful children. We said, I want what you got. And we'd listen to that advice. And then we'd go get books that people would recommend. We'd read those books. And I can remember just thinking, man, this is going to be so easy, right? You just follow these easy steps. And then the child just does what you tell them to do all the time. Well, it's sort of like having a good battle plan. That lasts until you actually get your boots on the ground. And then nothing is exactly like you expected it to be. And you've got to start making decisions. And you, and you can't wait. You can't be like, all right, um, you know, it's, when, when you come up on a challenge with a child, you're like, all right, this baby, you're like, oh, just wait right there. I'm going to go research this. Right? I'm going to YouTube this. Well, you just got to make a decision right there and right then. And, and you've got to adjust in your mind. You keep the same principles. I understand that. I'm not talking about you throw out God's Word. You're living by principles. But the application of those principles, it's not exactly as clear and as easy and as clean as you thought it would be. And so you've got to make adjustments. You talk about people who had to make adjustments. Moses' parents had to make a lot of adjustments. They didn't raise their child in any sort of conventional way, not even for slaves in Egypt. Here are people, you, wouldn't, you would never say to a parent, I tell you what, here's a good idea. When you have your child, the best thing to do is hide that child somewhere in your house and don't tell anybody that he exists. And when that doesn't work out anymore, I tell you, make a basket and plop your child down in the river. Like none of this seems like a sensible approach to raising children. It certainly doesn't seem sensible to say, listen, um, 
when the daughter of a tyrant comes, hand your child over to her. But all they could do was act in faith at each step of the way. And so at that moment, the most faithful thing they could do to protect Moses was to hide him. It's not ideal. Or then to hide him away in the river and and have faith in God. And of course their faith is rewarded because by God's providence, Moses' sister just happens to be standing there and there's Pharaoh's uh, daughter saying, can you go find a handmaid? Well, I I just might know somebody. And so Moses' mother ends up getting paid to raise her son. And so she is able to come and it's not ideal. Like she wouldn't choose to to have him be the daughter or the son rather of Pharaoh's daughter uh, and, and to be his nursemaid. That wouldn't be her first choice. But she takes hold of that. She says, I'll use that. And I'm going to tell you what, she must have been effective. Because here's a man when he gets to be grown has a choice between being the grandson of the ruler of the world or to go suffer with slaves in the desert. And she has done a good enough job and instilled enough conviction that he can turn away from that and choose this. That's what the Hebrew writer tells us. And it wasn't because she had it all mapped out and it went just like she planned. I think sometimes we think that everything's going to have to go according to plan for us to have faithful children. What I want is I want my children to be a part of a church where there's lots of young people and there's lots of, uh, there's lots of studies where the young people get together, lots of programs. I want my children to be a part of this kind of school and I want them to have lots of activities. They need to learn to play ball. They need to learn to be well-adjusted and, and, and I want them to have the best education. They need to get a good job. But what happens along the way? Where you are, there is a church that's got lots of young people, but they don't teach the truth. And so if you're going to be faithful to God, that's not an option anymore. And so you end up, instead of that nice big church with with 20 or 30 young people your kid's age, you end up at a congregation of 30 people and the average age is 75. Can you raise a faithful child in that situation? You bet you can. What about the school? This is the prominent school. This is the good school. But it's... You cannot afford a house over there. Or you can't afford that private school. And so you're either going to have to send them to this school that that is not as prestigious, or maybe you've got to just teach them at home. I just don't know if we can do it then. Oh yeah, you can do it then. What about, I'm I'm going to have them play ball and be involved in all of that. Well, you know, when I was growing up, I mean, most of my friends went to church. And the ball field, it was always closed on Sundays. And it was most of the time closed on Wednesdays. Not anymore. Man, Sunday's the free day. We're going to have ball all day on Sunday. Not only that, but maybe at your ball ball team and maybe at your ballpark, they've been uh, indoctrinated, and so they want to be uh, sexual proclivity inclusive. And so the purple-haired transgender guy is going to be your your uh, little Johnny's baseball coach. Now how important is it? I'm going to tell you, for some people it would be so important that they would swallow all that just to make sure they have that. But as parents who are faithful to God, we've got to be able to adjust and say, you know what? I would have loved for him to have all those things. 
but he can he can get to heaven without ever picking up, up picking up a baseball for his whole life. And, and with, with going to school in places that are, are failing schools and not being at the top of his class, not getting into the university, you want, without even going to a university, he can get to heaven. Sometimes we want those peripherals so bad that we'll miss the actual thing that will point them in that direction. Over in Luke chapter 1, In Luke chapter 1, it's a point that Brother Holly has made. I've heard him make a few times with regards to John the Baptist. There he is uh, being raised by godly parents. And it tells us there at the end of that chapter, the child continued to grow and become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Probably a lot of ball teams in the deserts. Probably some prestigious schools in the deserts. Because you've got to have those things. I bet there were large congregations of faithful Israelites in the deserts. I'll tell you what John the Baptist had wherever he was, was faithful parents. And that's what you need. I hear parents talk about the differences between schooling, for instance. Just take that as one example. Oh, public schools, that helps your children become adjusted and learn to to sort of deal with the world. Well, I'll tell you what, it certainly can help your children. Public school can help your children come in contact with the world. Well, you want to learn to deal with the world? That's on you. That's parents that are going to teach your children how to deal with the world. We'll say, oh, I'm going to send them to private school because that will cut them off from the world. Guess what? The world's in the private school too. And sometimes even worse than the public school. Because that's the world with money. And they can get in real trouble. So you hadn't protected them there either. I know. I'll just keep them home. And then we'll be safe. Some of the most prideful, self-righteous Christians I've ever seen have been raised, separated from the world in that way and taught to look down on everyone around them. And so they were not safe there either. What will make the difference in any of those circumstances is the parents who take up a role like Amram and Jochebed who said we can raise a faithful child even in the, the worst conceivable circumstances. And Elizabeth and Zacharias could raise faithful children. Timothy, who we'll talk about later this week, could be raised faithfully by a mother and a grandmother without a believing father. It's possible. It's possible. But what you're going to have to do is realize that raising children is never going to follow some pre-arranged notion. You're going to have to decide what the next faithful thing is as as we pray for God's guidance, as we pray for His wisdom, and then we follow it. We seek first the kingdom of heaven and His righteousness. All these things will be added. That doesn't mean private school will be added. Faithfulness will be added. Righteousness will be added. The things we truly need will be added. What we have is a harmony between faith and activity in Moses' parents. 
And we need to find that, that harmony in our own lives. Well, concluding all of that, don't let the world define to you the worth of children. Let God's word do that. Don't lose sight of what our job is as caretakers and protectors of our children. And no matter what your circumstances are, you decide to follow God. And you decide what the best thing, next best choice is from that perspective in raising your children. You may be here tonight and not a Christian. Or you may be uh, someone who has become a Christian and then has fallen back into the world. Sometimes you think, but under, in my circumstances, just no way. One of the things that the scriptures show us all along is no matter what the circumstances are, there's always a way. We were talking about Jeremiah earlier today. And Tom brought up one of my favorite kings to think about, and that is Manasseh. And one of the reasons Manasseh is one of my favorite kings to think about is because, well, just what Tom said about him, he is the worst king, and yet at the end of his story from First Chronicles, Second Chronicles, we see that Manasseh, even Manasseh, could come back. And so the door is always open to you. Not just it's always possible with the children, it's always possible with you. And so if there's any way that we could help you reconcile yourself with God this evening, become His child, then we would encourage you to let us know. Come forward while we stand and while we sing. Would you live for Jesus and be always pure and good? Would you walk with Him within the narrow road? Would you have Him bear your burden, carry all your load? Let Him have His way with thee. His power can make you what you ought to be. His love can cleanse your heart and make you free. His love can fill your soul and you will see it was best. For him to have his way with thee. Would you have him make you free and follow at his call? Would you know the peace that comes by giving all? Would you have him save you so that you need never fall? Let him have his way with thee. His you ought to be. His blood can cleanse your heart and make you free. His love can fill your soul and you will see. T'was best for him to have his way with thee. Would you in his kingdom find a place of constant rest? Would you prove him true each providential test? Would you in his service labor always at your best? Let him have his way with